This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, everyone. This is Katie Milkman, a professor here at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm so excited to be interviewing my friend, Maya Shunker, a PhD cognitive scientist, senior director of behavioral economics at Google, founder and chair of the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team under Obama, first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations, and the creator, executive producer, and host of the new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans from Pushkin Industries. You can see why I'm excited to be talking to her today. Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks so much, Katie. It's always so much fun to chat with you, so I'll take any excuse. Likewise. I actually would love it if you could first tell me a little bit about the path that led you to run the very first social and behavioral sciences team ever embedded at the White House. I know it was a really neat and exciting role, and I'd love it if you could share the origin story. Yeah, definitely. So I was an academic. Uh, I was doing my postdoc at Stanford in cognitive neuroscience. And I think I realized this one day I was in the basement of an fMRI laboratory and I was in this windowless room for probably five hours at this point. And I remember this guy came in and I was scanning his brain and I realized, hmm, I think the order of operations is off here because I'm literally peering into this person's brain, but I don't know how many kids they have. I don't know anything about this person's hobbies. So it just felt for me and my personality, like I needed to be in a slightly more social role. Um, And uh, I didn't know what could come next, right? Because what does a cognitive neuroscience postdoc do after if they don't become a professor? So I ended up calling my mentor from college to get some advice. And she let me know that there was this amazing work happening in the federal government in which they were using behavioral science insights to help low-income kids get access to free lunch at school. And I found that insight so inspiring and so powerful. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I wanna be doing. I wanna be working at the intersection of behavioral science and public policy. So uh, she ended up connecting me with Cass Sunstein, who as we both know is one of the most famous and revered legal scholars in the world. He had just finished a stint in Obama's White House. uh, And he very generously connected me to President Obama's science advisor. Um, And I ended up pitching them on the idea of creating a new role for me that would basically allow me to apply insights from behavioral science to public policy. Could you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges that you faced in that role at the White House, establishing this new team and having an impact? Well, yeah, I would say the challenges began on the first minute of day one. So when I came in, I was given some really valuable advice from my boss who had served in the Clinton administration for eight years, left for Bush, and then came back and ended up serving eight years under Obama. And basically what he told me is you need to institutionalize practices in government in ways that are durable across political administration changes. And so what that taught me was, okay, I can come in as one person and try to have as much impact as I possibly can. But what if I actually built a dedicated team of behavioral scientists that could far outlive my own tenure at the White House and continue to apply these nudges even when there's a new president in office and and potentially a new political party? Um, So I made it my goal to build a team similar to the behavioral insights team in the United Kingdom. And the challenge that I faced is that 
you know, in the UK, David Cameron was all behind this. Um, so they had his blessings from day one. But in my case, there was no mandate that I could point to. I had no budget and no resources. And so in order to build this team, I had to be really scrappy. I mean, it was almost like building a startup in my parents' basement and had to inspire organic interest in my government agency partners in order to get them to collaborate with me, right? Because there was no one telling them that they had to apply these nudges. Uh, I just had to try to convince them that they should and that it would be best for their programs. And so I literally knocked on every single door. Well, I guess not literally, but you know what? Probably close, Katie. Uh, I knocked on so many doors and would tell them, okay, um, you know, I'm Maya, I'm a behavioral scientist. I'm trying to build this behavioral science team. Let me tell you about how valuable these insights have been in other policy contexts. Um, and can you just tell me what your goals are? Because then I can try to tell you what behavioral insights might be helpful in achieving those goals that you've already articulated for yourself, but may benefit from insights from our field. And, you know, I was probably rejected, you know, 80% of the time initially. But then slowly we started to get some of these early wins on the board. And those early wins led to this wonderful cascade of activity and excitement within the government uh, that ultimately led us to be able to establish the team. And eventually President Obama signed an executive order that formalized the team as a more permanent part of government. So exciting. Could you Share what you feel most proud of accomplishing while you were in government. Uh, obviously, probably the formation of a team that outlasted you in that executive order. But in terms of the actual work that you did, were there any projects that, that stand out as things you're particularly proud of? So I'll, I'll get to the projects in a moment. But some of the most personally inspiring moments for me, um, when I would meet a civil servant. So someone, this one woman, Rosemary, she had worked at the Department of Defense for decades. She was planning on retiring. And then it was a partnership with my team that led her to want to stay in government and keep doing this work. And it was stories like that that you know, really allowed me to see the power of innovation and bringing new methods into government and really inspired me on those tougher days. Um, in terms of projects, you know, in a lot of sectors, especially the private sector, experimentation is just business as usual practice, right? A-B testing is just what you do as a matter of course. But in government, that's absolutely not the case. So government agencies, certainly when I was in government, were not in the practice of testing um, different variations of things. So I remember when we worked with the Department of Veterans Affairs, we were trying to get them to not only apply nudges, but actually generate causal information, right? Generate causal data showing that these nudges were in fact having the intended impact. Um, so in this particular case, the VA was really eager to get veterans to sign up for an employment and higher education benefit that they were able to access when they returned from their years of service. And um, you know, this is a very important benefit because the transition from military to civilian life can be fraught and full of challenges. And the government created this program to help support vets um, you know, as they're making this transition. But not enough vets were taking advantage. So we stepped in budget was very limited. We had to, we had to stay within, you know, the fixed program costs. And we ended up just changing one word in a, in a marketing email about the program. Instead of telling vets that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. And 
you know, we, we both know about the endowment effect, right? Like people value things more when they own them. And this was an extension of that. Like how about when people feel that they've earned them? Um, and it also plays on loss aversion, right? Which is now they, you know, believe that they already have this benefit in their hands and now they have something to lose. And that one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the benefit. And what was amazing about this is the first time that this group within Veterans Affairs had ever run an A-B test. And they threw a pizza party. It was a huge celebration that they were not only using innovative practices from behavioral science, but were also using rigorous experimental methods and were running their first randomized control trial ever. That's such a happy story. I love that example. Uh, I'm wondering if you are expecting a new White House nudge unit to take shape under the Biden administration. And also, if you would ever consider heading back to lead it if, if it comes to pass. <laughs> well, I'm very happy doing my current work uh, and I'm loving podcasting for a slight change of plans. So probably not. Um, and I also think having fresh blood in the system would be great, right? A new leader to come in with a fresh vision of what a behavioral sciences team could, could do in government would be great and uh, probably, you know, benefit so many people. So the executive order is still in existence, right? You know, Trump didn't like overrule it or anything like that. Um, but what I realized when I was in government is that formalized paper only does so much. Um, I think before I entered the government, I used to think, oh, when you want something to happen and you want for there to be impact, you get like some leader, government agency official to put, you know, pen to paper and sign some fancy document and then all of a sudden work happens. But that's just not the reality of what actually happens uh, in the White House or in the government. It's always reduced to people and people caring about an issue or a topic or a method and every day committing themselves to that goal. So I would say when it comes to the social and behavioral sciences team, you know, there is already a body within the government services administration that's been doing great work uh, over the last four years or so. That was, you know, the bipartisan place that we initially built the team. But in terms of reestablishing a White House component, it will take people who are fiercely dedicated to the cause um, in order for, for impact to happen. Well, my fingers and toes are crossed, even if you're not the one to do it, that that big things are coming. Um, I know you had a very different career planned when you were young, and I, I actually want to back up because I think listeners will find that fascinating. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the journey that you were on before an injury derailed you and what you learned from that experience that's shaped your approach to life and work since. And I'm eventually getting to some questions about the podcast. You can probably tell this is a wind up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, in many ways, my former career, if you can call it that, I mean, I was a kid, was an inspiration for, for my podcast. I had my own slight change of plans <laughs> when I was 15. But basically, I started playing the violin, classical violin when I was six, and it turned very serious when I was nine. I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college division and was very fortunately accepted. And then when I was, I think, 13 or so, Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his violin student. It was an incredible honor, and I was so passionate about the violin. But then, quite sadly, when I was 15, I had a sudden acute hand injury that basically ended my career overnight. So I had to figure out a new path very quickly and, and also try to rediscover who I was because the violin had defined so much of me up until that point. It's such an interesting and um, difficult challenge for a kid to experience, right? And I assume that uh, if you hadn't gone through that, 
you probably wouldn't be so interested in the way that we react when when we need to change. Am I right in thinking that the the podcast you've recently launched called A Slight Change of Plans was largely motivated by the slight changes of plans your life has, has had to accommodate? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, you know, when you're a kid, at least in my case, I wasn't thinking at the time, wow, this is this big change that I'm going through, right? Um, I just thought to myself, this is a really unfortunate thing that's happened and how do I move forward? But in recent years, and especially um, in 2020, I was thinking about the fact that I was certainly feeling so overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change around me. I know so many people were um, feeling overwhelmed by that change and just the feeling of a loss of control. And I remember thinking back on my own life and thinking, you know, maybe the specifics of what 2020 threw our way were unprecedented, but our human ability to navigate change is not. I mean, if you mine any person's life story, you will find some sort of profound change that they've gone through. Um, so it made me feel like, well, that's good. Like as humans, we kind of got this whole change thing, right? Substance might be different, but maybe the psychology we recruit when we are engaging with change um, can be quite similar. And that if we mind people's stories, we can learn a lot of valuable insights about how other people have navigated the changes in their lives. It's so great. I should note that I, I think it's such a fantastic podcast. In fact, let me say a little bit more about it because I want to pivot to talking about your first episode, which just came out. So this new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, is with Malcolm Gladwell's podcasting company, Pushkin Pods, which is a brand with some amazingly popular podcasts to its name, including right? Gladwell's own revisionist history, the happiness mm -hmm. lab with Laurie Santos against the rules with Michael Lewis. Um, and actually your podcast, I noticed debuted in the top 35 on the Apple podcast charts. So that was super exciting. And I listened to the first episode with the incredible blues mu musician, Daryl Davis, who mm -hmm. changed the minds of hundreds of members of the KKK and convinced them to abandon white supremacy. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about why you chose to open the show with that interview and what you learned from Daryl's story. So when I was conceiving of the podcast idea in the first place, I had Daryl's story in my head. Um, I felt like it was a remarkable story of change because not only did his life change, right? He was a, a jazz musician, just focusing on his music. And then one day he gets uh, approached by a member of the Ku Klux Klan at a bar and his life takes a sudden turn but then he also worked to change other people's minds. So it's such a rich change story, right? Personal change and then also inspiring mindset changes in others. And I think I, well, one, on a personal level, I love that he was a musician. <laughs> we were able to bond over our shared love of music. And what I found so amazing about Daryl's story is that the approaches that he used to try to get Ku Klux Klan members to change their minds and leave the Klan, which he effectively did many times, is really corroborated by research in psychology and cognitive science, right? So if you listen to a story, you'll hear that he used motivational interviewing techniques, right? Which we know are, are very effective, like asking a lot of questions, trying to really develop a deep personal relationship uh, with the person, showing genuine curiosity and empathy for why that person might have established those views in the first place. And it's almost like he knew motivational interviewing was cool even before it was cool, you know, because he just <laughs> he just naturally landed upon um, these brilliant insights using his own mind. Um, but it's wonderful to see that, again, some of these techniques he used um, and it's, it's just overall view of 
of people and that you can find something redeeming um, in, in people who have the absolute worst beliefs. And if, you, and if you tap into that humanity, you can maybe unlock this potential for them to you know, abandon their ugly views and become better people. It was an amazing first episode. I think it was a great choice. I, I really loved it. Oh, the other thing that was so incredible about this episode is one, we were able to access Daryl's uh, blues recordings. So you can actually hear his original music in, in the episode. And, uh, you know, he has this really, I don't want to give too much away. It's such a suspenseful episode, but he has um, an interview with a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And we were able, he was able to access uh, in his garage and he was able to find the old cassette tapes that he used to record that interview back in the day. So listeners will get to hear a little clip of the original interview that I believe happened uh, in the 80s. Just fascinating. And I'll just double click and say also, I did love the original music. My brother is a blues musician. So I was, that was very fun from a personal level. I know everyone will enjoy that too. Okay. So you are a PhD behavioral scientist who has left academia and tried to have an impact in several really different ways, in government, in industry, and now in podcasting. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about lessons learned in each of those spheres. Maybe it might be separately, or it might be that you see an overarching lesson about how behavioral science can add the most value. When it comes to change specifically? Um, I was, I was just thinking in the world, I think there's different ways that you probably have added value, maybe in government and industry and podcasting and science communication. I'm just curious sort of what you see as the big lessons learned on, on impact from your work in each Mm. of those spaces. Yeah. I think when it comes to being a practitioner of behavioral science is, is very humbling because you quickly realize where the limits are. And I think the area that is hardest to achieve in this space is changing people's minds. So I think we've definitely unlocked a lot of insights. These are in your book, uh, your amazing book, I should add, about how people can inspire behavior change within themselves when they have a goal, but say, you know, short-term costs, overwhelm, long-term best interests. Um, One thing that's been a lot more intractable is getting people to challenge their fundamental beliefs and ideologies, uh, values, um, the way they think about the world. And it has been really exciting to see burgeoning research in this area that we see can be effective, right? So we talked about motivational interviewing. Um, You know, I loved Adam Grant's new book about, you know, how to change minds and how to inspire rethinking in people. Um, I... I love all the work uh, from Dan Kahan and others on cultural cognition and how if we reframe messages in ways that hold people's values constant, we can actually get them to examine some pretty deeply held views. Um, so I would say I'm both humbled by that, right? Just how incredibly hard it is to get someone to change their mind, but also pretty inspired by the research that's been done um, over the last decade in the space. And I think it's becoming increasingly important given the political climate we're seeing, um, and how divided people feel. I could not agree more. Okay. I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really curious about what you'll say. Maybe I'll even inspire you to come up with an interesting (laughs) answer that you haven't (laughs) thought about before. But what I want to know is if you have to forecast the future, what you think is next for Maya Shunker, You've had a lot of changes of plans from Yitzhak Perlman's <laughs> protege violinist to neuroscientist to leading an innovative new operation at the White House uh, to running a behavioral science unit at Google and now hosting this wildly popular podcast. 
Do you have any guesses as to where your next change of plans might take you? <laughs> well, I hope mom comes at some point in the next few years. My husband and I are, are very eager to start a family. I hope that too. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Exciting. And I would say, you know, I've just dipped my toes in podcasting, um, right? Having continuing actually to to build and produce this first season. And I have absolutely fallen in love with it. I love being on this end of the mic and getting to hear people's stories and getting to to dive deep and and feed my own curiosity about so many aspects of the human experience. So I really hope podcasting's in my future. I hope a slight change of plans is the type of show that resonates with people and that people like um, because I've loved it so much and I and I hope people can hear that passion uh, when they tune in. I know it is will. absolutely the thing that I would do in my free time, which I know when I interviewed you for my podcast, we talked about like it's a very good litmus test for uh, <laughs> for what you love, right? You you picked up that book and you were thinking, oh my gosh, this is the type of book that I would read just for fun. Um, and I'm feeling that way with podcasting, which is I would absolutely do this in my free time for fun. That's great. Wonderful. Well, I know that you are going to be an amazing mother and you are absolutely an amazing podcast host. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk with me today about your various adventures and this new podcast you've launched. Thank you, Maya. Thank you so much, Katie. It's great to chat. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.